Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I am the host. My name is Brandon Vaught. I'm the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us from his residence in Los Angeles is His Eminence Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good morning. Hey, Brandon. Good morning to you. Always good to talk to you and see you. You as well. Now, you're in Los Angeles because yeah. last night you participated in the Great Chrism Mass. What was that like? It was good. You know, it's uh, probably the most crowded this cathedral ever gets during the year. It was, I think, the the capacity here is about 3,000, and it was beyond capacity. So I'd say 3,500 people were here last night. And, you know, the Chrism Mass is a wonderful celebration because really the whole diocese comes together. People come to see the the oils, you know, of catechumen and the oils of the sick and the, the Chrism oil blessed. And then the people come and literally take them home then to their parishes. So it's a beautiful, I always love it, expression of the unity of, of, a, of an archdiocese. And a diocese this size, the largest in the U.S., it's impressive to see that display. Well, we're recording this on a very somber time, I think, in the history of Western civilization. This is April 16th, Tuesday of Holy Week. <clears throat> Just yesterday, Monday of Holy Week, the world was shocked to see images of the great cathedral of Notre Dame burning. Uh, it, it, you know, it reminded me of the images of the World Trade Centers where you just see these this magnificent building on fire, but then that moment when the World Trade Center collapsed was just like when this great spire of the Notre Dame Cathedral, it collapsed, the roof caved in. It's still a little too early to understand the significance of the damage or, or even what caused it, but we wanted to devote this episode to this building and its significance, both religiously and historically. So I guess, first of all, Bishop, where were you when you first heard about this? I was in the car. I was coming down from Santa Barbara here to LA. And I, I, I noticed on my phone, like things, maybe one from you, Brandon, even it's popping up. I'm like, what's that? I couldn't really see. Then, then finally, Father Steve uh, called me from Santa Barbara and he said, it's very grave. He's, I, I, I hate to share this bad news. I thought someone had died. I really did. And he said, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral's on fire. So then I'd say maybe it was 10 minutes later, I got a call from NBC News because I'm on retainer with them. So when something of religious significance happens, they'll, they'll call me sometimes. So the call came through and I had literally just heard about this. And I found myself on this national broadcast all of a sudden commenting on Notre Dame. And I just kind of spoke from the heart about my own personal association with it and, um, you know, what it meant to me. And then that triggered in turn a whole day of, of interviews with all kinds of programs. Uh, I did call-ins for the most part, but uh, it was quite a day and it was a heart-rending day. And you're right, watching those images, uh, I'll never forget that because the news this morning is actually better than we anticipated. Uh, the fact that the three rose windows are apparently intact, I was overjoyed when I heard that. Those are the most precious things inside that great cathedral. Um, and it looked like now just maybe the, the roof and the spire are gone, but that the structural integrity is there, the towers are there, the windows. So I, I'm kind of relieved that it's not as bad as we feared. But still, as you say, just that image uh, conjured up so much. This building which has survived world wars and revolutions and you know eight centuries of history and uh it, it was like something very precious to the western soul was was burning up before our eyes 
Now, when you were studying in Paris, you served for a while as a tour guide to that very cathedral. You used to take people around. And I want to talk about that here in a moment. But first of all, maybe if you were giving us a tour and we knew nothing about the cathedral, give us a, a one or two minute summary of its history. When was it built? Why is it significant? What's What relics does it hold? Give us the, yeah. the history of this great building. Well, it's one of the oldest of the Gothic churches. They, they often say Saint-Denis, you know, which is just north of Paris, where the, the French monarchs are buried, is the first truly Gothic church. Gothic kind of grew up out of the Romanesque form. Go to a church like Vézelay, which is one of my favorites, is a Romanesque church. But in the, in the apse of that church, you see the very beginnings of a Gothic move. Saint-Denis, you know, more clearly. But Notre Dame in Paris is very old. It began in 1163, so mid-12th century. And it's one of the first of these uh, purely Gothic uh, churches. It's finished somewhere in the beginning of the 14th century. So it took, you know, that was pretty typical in those days, 150 years or so to build. It was being built and, and largely complete in the time that Thomas Aquinas was in Paris. When he was there in the 1250s, 1260s, Notre Dame would have been standing probably gleaming white in those days. I can only imagine the splendor of the windows, especially the roses, when Thomas and Bonaventure would have seen them. Um, it's, I would say, the church that probably best sums up the Parisian and the French um, spirit. And so it, it emerges, obviously, in the age of faith, and it's expressive of the, of the Catholic faith of the French people. It's now endured all these centuries as the great symbol of the French nation and people, etc. So it has all of that you know, in it. The, the jewels are the rose windows. I mean, three of the finest in, in the West. It's rival only by Chart. I mean, I think Chart is, is the finest of all the Gothic churches. But I'd say maybe right after Chart, I'd put Notre Dame in terms of its splendor. Um, not the biggest by any means. Think of a, like a Cologne cathedral in Germany is by far taller. Uh, I think Amiens is taller. But Notre Dame, there's a, there's a pristine and, and uh, jewel-like quality to it. Uh, I find it one of the most spiritually charged places on the planet. Um, another feature that's interesting to me is Notre Dame uh, was built on the site of an earlier Christian church, and then that church was built on the site of a Roman temple when the Romans controlled um, Paris. And the Roman temple was built on the site of an earlier, you know, pagan uh, temple. The point is that spot on the Ile de la Cité, you know, that little island in the middle of the Seine, has been a, a, a sacred spot for millennia, you know. And Notre Dame, in, in the typical Christian style, it's not repudiating what came before. It's kind of building upon what came before. They built the great cathedral there. But, you know, I associate it with all of these great figures who are in the, in the Parisian uh, Middle Ages. The great University of Paris, just off on the left bank and the, the so-called Quartier Latin, right? The Latin Quarter, where all these Latin-speaking students came in the Middle Ages. So it has all of that resonance. Um, and that's why I think it stirred the soul so deeply yesterday. Tell us about the first time you encountered this cathedral, your first experience with it. Yeah, I've talked about it before. I remember it vividly. It was June the 12th, 1989. I had just uh, flown from Chicago. It was my first time ever in Paris. I'd come for doctoral studies. Um, anyone that's gone through that experience, you know, when you, you're leaving home, you know you're gone now for a long time. It was like an initiation sort of ritual. You're, you've been thrown out on your own into a foreign country. I mean, I had some French, but not, my French wasn't great in those days. Um, new city, new place, everything. 
I dropped my things off at the Redemptor's house where I would live for the next three years. And I just wandered. I mean, I was, I was, I was tired. I remember a jet lag. I didn't quite know what was going on and where I was going, but I wandered down to Notre Dame and uh, entered that great building. And I, I went up to the main aisle to the transept. And then I turned and looked at the, at the North Rose window, which is, I think, the finest of all the roses in, in the world. And um, there I stood mesmerized, I mean, for a long period of time. And you could say, oh, the jet lag, and I was confused and all that was true. But there was something about that window that just sang to me. And I went back uh, every single day until um, Christmas time when I, when I flew home. Uh, and I stood there in that spot. So Notre Dame was a charged place for me personally. Um, you know, and Brandon, during my three years in Paris, uh, not every Sunday, but typically when I could, I would go to the mass celebrated by um, the Archbishop of Paris in those days, the great Jean-Marie Lustiger. Lustiger, who was a Jew, his, his mother died in the Shoah. And his parents sent him to a, a Catholic family for safekeeping during the, the Nazi, you know, period. And so this young kid, this young Jewish kid, uh, is now growing up in a Catholic ambiance and begins to read the New Testament and actually visits, not Notre Dame, but visits another of the great Gothic cathedrals. And that had a huge impact on his, on his soul. And that's the man that was the archbishop when I was in Paris. And it was a great privilege in that cathedral to hear this Jewish man who had become a Catholic speaking about the very, uh, you know, Jewish quality of, of Catholic faith. Anyway, those are some of the great memories and resonances I have for Notre Dame. So you first entered the cathedral in 1989, and it wasn't long after that that you became a tour guide. Yeah. I think you said every Wednesday you would give tours around there. So a couple things I'm wondering about. First, how do you go from not ever visiting the cathedral to being a tour guide? Did you have to go through training or yeah. any sort of you know study? And then what, what was that experience like giving tours? What do you remember about yeah, it? Yeah, it might have been, I forget exactly. It might have been toward the end of my first year in Paris. One of my colleagues at the house where I lived, another priest, was was doing this. He was a, a tour guide. So he got me, he's saying, oh, they're always looking for guides in English. And and even at that time, you know, Brandon, I, I did know a lot about the cathedrals. I had studied them. I loved them. And he said, well, you you know a lot about cathedrals and you, and you love Notre Dame. Why don't you look into it? So I remember I did. I went down to the, whatever the meeting was. And we were told, now this is like 1990, um, and the group that ran the tours was a very just secular group. And we were told explicitly, don't talk about religion when you go. It's just, you know, you're there to talk about the you know, history of it and the size of it and all this stuff. Well, I, I never followed that, <laughs> that recommendation. Uh, I forget, honestly, if there was some kind of test. I forget. But uh, I, I never felt at a loss. So, I mean, I, I knew Notre Dame pretty well, and I read extensively. And, um, so when I started giving the tours, I, I was pretty confident. And then I, in short order, I developed my own kind of version. It's maybe a half-hour tour, and I took them to several spots. The Rose Window was always a highlight for me. Everything that I've written and spoken about Rose Windows was born on those tours as I was – explaining them to people and, and you know, watching people's faces. I learned what, what really sang to them and what made sense to them. The tour always ended, I remember, outside and looking at the facade, which is magnificent. And I, I've written a lot about the facade of Notre Dame, and that also was born of those tours I gave. Uh, I love them because, you know, I was a doctoral student. Uh, most of my time was spent reading books and writing and going to seminars, and I was living a very low-key kind of monkish life. 
I did say mass um, some weekdays. Typically on the weekend, I, I didn't say mass. I would attend mass somewhere, you know. So I didn't have a chance to preach very often. And I took advantage of, of those tours to preach. Is I, I would start talking about the Catholic faith through the visual aid of the, of the uh, cathedral. So that was always a great joy for me to do that. And um, I loved it. I remember it vividly. It was at noon on Wednesdays. And there was a microphone. I forget now where I, where I went, but there was a microphone and it would just boom over the cathedral. And I would just say, a tour in English will be happening at noon today. Please meet me at wherever I, we met. And always there was a good crowd. Always. Um, anyway, it was a joy for me. I know people are probably wishing, oh my goodness, I wish I could go on a 30-minute tour with Bishop Barron around <laughs> Notre Dame. And if that's what you're thinking, uh, I encourage you to pick up Bishop's book yeah. titled Heaven in Stone and Glass, Heaven in Stone and Glass, Experiencing the Spirituality of the Great Cathedrals. It's a small book. You can read it pretty quickly. Um, but he goes through not just Notre Dame, but um, several other major religious cathedrals and buildings from around the world. So check that book out. Hey, Bishop, how would you rank, in, in your mind, Notre Dame amongst all the other great religious buildings and sites? Where does it stand in terms of its beauty? Well, maybe I'll just stay with the Gothic churches. I'd say it's number two. In my mind, Chart is, is the greatest of, of the Gothic cathedrals. And, and for my money, the greatest covered space in the world is Chart Cathedral, which is about an hour south of Paris. Um, but Notre Dame, I put number two. Now, of all the great, I mean, now look at uh, St. Peter's in Rome, and, and if you want to broaden it out, I'd certainly put it like in the top five, <laughs> you know. But of the Gothic churches, I'd say number two. Um, you know, it's it's better known than Sharp just because it's in Paris, and so many more people see it. And Paris, you know, from the Middle Ages, from the time of Abelard, Paris was a major cultural center. And, you know, I mentioned Abelard even before Thomas Aquinas, a good century before Aquinas. Peter Abelard is there. And I would say, really, of all the great figures, he's the reason Paris is Paris. Because his uh, fame as a teacher of Christianity attracted students from all over uh, Christendom. And they came to the little cathedral school where he taught. And then their numbers became so great, that's when they spilled off of the Ile de la Cité onto the left bank which is still, to this day, the student quarter. Well, that started with Abelard. Well, because so many students came, well, then, of course, the, the city expands economically and becomes more of a political center. Um, Thomas Aquinas in the high Middle Ages, Paris clearly emerges as the most important of the medieval university cities. And so Paris as a cultural center, I would date to that time. You know, Well, what's at the very heart of this cultural center but this church, and that's true to this day. What's at the heart of Paris? The spot, by the way, from which all distance in France is measured. I used to point that out at the, it's in the, the Parvis, which is the, what is the plaza in front of the cathedral. There's a spot, and from that spot, we measure all the distance to, in France. So it's the, it's not the geographical center, but it's like the spiritual center of the country. Um, Notre Dame has stood at that center now for a thousand years. And to say Paris is to say Europe. I mean, arguably the most important city in Europe. To say Europe is to say really Western civilization. So that's why this building is at the center, and it's not an exaggeration, of, of Western civilization. That's why watching it burn yesterday was so devastating to so many of us. 
anyone with, I'll just do concentric circles out from, you know, Western civilization to European civilization to French civilization to Paris. But then at the very heart, I would say is, is Catholicism. Um, but that's why people, I think, felt so strongly about it yesterday. Let's spend a little time talking about the great North Rose window, yeah. which you've alluded to a couple times already. You featured this pretty extensively in the final episode of your Catholicism series. You had a lengthy meditation on how this window is like a foretaste of the beatific yeah. vision of, of heaven. And also, I know I was worried, you were worried too. A lot of these shots of the church burning were pointing toward the north side. And it was a little unclear because yeah. the other buildings were covering it, what the shape was of that window, the one above it, little circular window looked like it was totally melted. You could see right through it, but it sounds like this great rose window was preserved. Talk about the significance of it and, and why you find it particularly attractive. Yeah, where do I start, you know? Uh, I go, Brandon, right back to a course I took when I was a freshman at Notre Dame University, it was many years ago. There's a great guy, I'm sure he's long dead now, uh, Professor Leader was his name. And he had a course in, um, art history. And it was for freshmen mostly. And we gathered in this big auditorium and he would lecture for a time, but then they lowered the lights. And now this is the high tech at the time, but he had slides, you know, but they were gorgeous slides that he himself had taken on his many trips to Europe. And like Kenneth Clark, uh, he especially loved the Catholic Middle Ages. And I think that's the first time I really saw images. I was 17 years old of the great Gothic churches. And I think that's probably when I first saw the North Rose window. And I've loved it from that moment on, which is why the day I arrived, that's what I wanted to see. I, I wanted to go there and see it. Um, it's a foretaste of heaven in its beauty. Um, you're meant to go in that cathedral and be uh, prepared for heaven. In a way, you step out of this world, out of the workaday world, the ordinary world, and you're brought into this world of, of higher consciousness. You look at those windows that are splendid scenes from the Bible. They're meant to call to mind uh, God and his providence and his mercy and his ultimate intention for us. Then you walk through the church and it gets lighter and lighter. And then you come to the transept and then the great roses there kind of explode into your field of vision. And in its sheer beauty, and now think of Thomas Aquinas, who, who knew those windows as they were being built. Integritas, consonancia, claritas, right? The three qualities of the beautiful. Integritas, it's about one thing, wholeness. Look at that window and you see that it's about one thing, right? Consonancia, harmony, the harmony of those elements. And it is indeed musical. Consonancia means literally to sound together like a harmony. Well, when you look at that window, it is musical. Uh, that's the famous story about, you know, Viollet le Duc, was the man who in the 19th century, by the way, designed and built the spire that collapsed yesterday. That's from the 19th century, not from the Middle Ages. Um, but he did a beautiful renovation of Notre Dame. But when he was a little kid, uh, according to the story, his mother brought him into Notre Dame. And he's looking around and he sees that same window, right? And he says, écoute maman, c'est la rosace qui chante. Listen, mom, it's the, it's the rose that's singing. And, and that's exactly right. You know, it's the consonancia of the rose. And then finally, claritas, Aquinas says, means radiance. Well, for the first time, because of the buttresses and the, and, the, and the broken arch and so on, they were able to build these thin and high walls that enabled glass to be installed. You know, so 
the light coming into those buildings was unprecedented in any human structure to that point. Now we do it through steel reinforcement. We could do it. But in those days, no one had seen an interior that was illumined the way those buildings were. So integritas, consonancia, and then this brilliant claritas, it's meant to evoke for us what we call the visio beatifica, right? The, the beatific, the, the happiness producing vision of the very nature of God. And that's what that window is meant to do. Just a last bit is, uh, I used to always point this out, is the, the primacy of the number eight in that window. Around the central uh, image, you have eight tiny little circles. Then you go out and you have twice eight, 16. And then the next row of um, 32. And then another row of 32. So all multiples of eight, right? You add them all together, the eight, 16, 32, 32, and you get the number 88. So, of course, the medievals loved numerology, and that's based in both classical philosophy and the Bible. They love playing with numbers. Well, eight is the number of eternity, isn't it? Because seven means the completed cycle of time, the seven days of the week and so on. And eight, hence we have the octave of Easter and octave of Christmas and so on. That means the eternal Christmas, the eternal Easter. So the window that's full of integritas, consonancia, and claritas and is predicated upon the number eight, is meant to remind us of, of the eternity of heaven, the beauty of heaven. Beautifully too, you'll notice, as opposed to, to the um, south rose, which is on a much more vertical and horizontal axis, the south rose is just a little bit tilted. It's a little bit tilted this way, which gives the impression of, of movement, like a, like a turning wheel. Well, that's that same idea too of, the, of eternity as the eternal now, the, the eternally turning, beautiful vision. <laughs> Of, of God. So that window is meant to evoke all of that for us, which it certainly did for me. I've been following a lot of the coverage over the last 24 hours about the fire, and most of the commentary seems to emphasize the historical and cultural significance of this building. And every now and then you'll get something that says, it's probably best known for appearing yeah. in Victor Hugo's <laughs> Hunchback of Notre yeah, Dame right. you know, book. So the literary heritage, the historical, cultural, not a ton of emphasis on the religious significance, but you say to understand the importance of this building, that's that's the most crucial element. Of course, you say? and I tried to do that in all the programs I was on yesterday is, is always to bring it to the spiritual. Um, you know, Brent, I find so moving is to think this building, which as I was saying, stands in many ways at the heart of all of Western civilization, is dedicated to Notre Dame, right? Our Lady. Well, who's Our Lady? but Miriam of Nazareth, the mother of God. There's an Israelite girl who stands at the heart of Western civilization because she's the one through whom uh, the word became flesh. You know, uh, The incarnation, which happened in, in the womb of Miriam of Nazareth, is the central generative principle of Western civilization. And I think you can make a very cogent argument for that across the board. Even, you know, as I've, I've said, following many other people, that the physical sciences predicated upon the universality of intelligibility. What is that but a kind of incarnation, right? The word, God's order, God's intelligence becoming flesh in something as simple as these bodies of ours and leaves on trees and planets in the, in the distant uh, space. But what is that? But it's an incarnational principle of the word becoming flesh, right? 
where does that happen now in the unsurpassed paradigmatic way, but in the womb of Miriam of Nazareth, to whom that building is dedicated? So in all of its lyricism and beauty, it's meant to evoke her. And it's meant to evoke this principle of incarnation, which has given rise to Western civilization. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but I found the most moving yesterday was as the building was burning and it was not at all clear, like, is it going to survive at all? There were a group of uh, mostly younger uh, French people and they were gathered. They were then I shot of it. They, they weren't, I know just where they were, where they were standing and kneeling and they were singing the Hail Mary. Je vous salue Marie, pleine de grâce, le Seigneur est avec vous. And they were singing the Hail Mary. Um, I thought, well, right from the time that building was built, you would have had people praying that prayer in Latin in those days. But there they still are, you know, and that they're the ones who most got what that building means. So Victor Hugo and all that, which is terrific, but those are the people that most understood what that building means. And if it survives, it's because of, of that. And, and that's the thing that maybe is, is most hopeful about it. It is as France resolves, in some ways the whole world resolves to rebuild that building, maybe it will summon to mind again its religious significance, um, its spiritual significance for the people of Paris and France and, and the world. That's my hope, and who knows in God's providential designs, you know, what it might mean. That sound means, as it always does, that it's time for our listener question. Every episode, we take one question from our listeners. If you have one that you'd like to ask Bishop Barron, just visit the website askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question, and we might choose yours for the next episode. Today, we have a question from Richard in San Diego. He asks about one of your most influential intellectual heroes who you studied under at the Catholic University of America. So here's Richard's question. Bishop Barron, this is Richard from San Diego. I often hear you speak about Robert Sokolowski, and he must be important from the way you speak about him. What is it that makes him so important to us? And what would be a good book of his to read first to understand what it is he is saying? Thank you very much. Hmm. Bye. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you're right. I do talk about Robert Sokolowski a lot. I was a student of his back at Catholic U. So 79 through 82, I took him for a number of courses. Um, Monsignor Sokolowski has been teaching at Catholic U for, gosh, probably coming up on 50 years. He arrived there as a young man, as a, as a teacher, I think in the early 60s. In the 50s, he would have gone to Louvain, which is where the Husserl archive was kept. Now, Edmund Husserl, arguably the most seminal philosopher of the 20th century. His students include Edith Stein and Martin Heidegger himself and so on. Well, his archive after his death was sent to um, Louvain. So bright students interested in Husserl's phenomenology made a beeline to Louvain in those days. And Sokolowski was one of those. So his focus philosophically has been on this phenomenological tradition of Husserl. Now think of the way someone like Edith Stein or Dietrich von Hildebrand took the phenomenology, or Karl Wojtyla, took the phenomenology of Husserl and they linked it to the classical Catholic philosophy of, of Thomas Aquinas. I put Sokolowski in that uh, category. Um, to say Husserl is to say phenomenology, and that's to say the most influential 
philosophical perspective of the 20th century. Sokolowski read it as an answer to Kant. You know, Kant who would, who would bequeath to us the noumenon phenomenon distinction, so you can't get beyond phenomenon to the thing in itself. Well, Husserl's adage was, zu den Sachen selbst in his German, to the things themselves. Now, I can't begin to go into how he did all that, but it was a philosophical move designed to overcome the Kantian bifurcation between appearance and reality. And so that gave philosophers of a more realist uh, frame of mind, and that means Aristotelians and Thomas, a way into modernity. And I put Sokolowski there. That's, that's his sort of philosophical space. Okay. What he did for me and for many others, there, there's a whole slew, by the way, of scholars in our country who would claim him as a, as a teacher. Um, uh, one of them is Guy Mancini, Father Mancini from St. Meinrad, who's done a lot of important work. Uh, Cardinal DiNardo uh, of, of Houston, who's done work in patristics with a student of Sokolowski, many others. What he did, I think, for a lot of us was he showed uh, how philosophy can function very creatively within a theological framework and help to illumine certain truths of theology that might remain opaque otherwise. That the best book now of his to read is um, The God of Faith and Reason, where he does just that. The central idea of which is what he calls the distinction, the distinction between God and the world, which is so distinctive and unique that it allows us to illumine a lot of Christian mysteries, including and especially the Eucharist and the Incarnation. Now, that's what I've used a lot in my own writings, is, is that insight about God's, what I call, non-competitive transcendence. That's a Sokolowski idea that I've used. So anyway, I know I'm probably bazooing a bit here, but uh, he's meant a lot to me and to a lot of uh, scholars around the country. And uh, start with the God of faith and reason. I'll second that recommendation. And also, if, if you're trying to get into phenomenology and you don't know where to start, yeah. I think Sokolowski has another good book titled Introduction yeah, to very Phenomenology. Fine. Very fine. That's a course I took at Catholic U years ago. He, he did an intro to Husserl, and that's, that's that book, basically. Well, listen, before we wrap up here, I want to thank a lot of you who have not only listened to the show, but have joined us by supporting the show through Patreon. I mentioned over the last few episodes that we have a new Patreon account. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash patron. And you can join us in this mission of using podcasts to evangelize. Um, we have more information there about uh, what the money goes toward and how it helps. But I want to give a special shout out to a handful of people who have contributed uh, at, at, a, at very high levels, including Adam Grenier, Andrew Seaton, Andy Sieg, Austin, Bill Howman, Bridget Blair, Dana Marie Buchanan, David Aurelio, Don and Bethany Wilcox, Edwin and Emily de St. Albin, Please forgive me if I butcher your name, but thank you so, so much for your support. There are many others who have given too, and we're going to be shouting them out here on, on uh, future episodes, but we're just so thrilled to see hundreds of you signal that you like this show, you want to support it, and you want to get it out to more people. One last request, if you do like this show and whether you donate through Patreon or not, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. The way these services work, the more reviews the show gets, the more often it recommends it to new people. So the reviews really help and they don't cost a thing. So be sure to review the Word on Fire show on iTunes. Well, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. 